Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my watch said 401, but now that I look at the one on the screen, it says 359. Uh, we're somewhere close uh, in the neighborhood. Hope you uh, are with us uh, this afternoon, um, whether or not we're starting exactly on time. Um, what uh, what we're talking about today, uh, what Clayton is talking about today, is uh, he continues his um, examination of who and what God is. Uh, last week he introduced us to uh, this concept of a, an, a being outside of our range of knowledge, our uh, range of experience, given the fact that we are bound by um, our, our three-dimensional uh, three dimensional and maybe even our fourth dimension uh, of time. And he will talk today about space and time, uh, where God is concerned. You'll notice that uh, at the beginning of each one of these lessons, he reviews a bit. And today he pauses and goes back to his original uh, blue chart where he talks about uh, that there had to be a cause um, and was the cause personal or impersonal. He does this, I'm sure, so that we don't lose sight of that fundamental question which guides all of his lessons, but at the same time, if someone chooses not to go back and watch them in sequence, he can at least hit these basic points so that when he refers to them within the lesson, uh, the people will have a, a uh, frame of reference on that. And uh, today, he is going to talk again about, uh, he gets more into the Bible and how, how God is defined in the Bible. And he said this, I think, last week, that there are no physical or human characteristics of God, that he is spirit, and that he, as a spirit, has spiritual characteristics. So let's talk, uh, let's listen to what um, John Clayton has to say about space, time, and God. Welcome to the Does God Exist video series, program number nine. We build a series of questions into a logical argument for the existence of God. We've tried to point out to you that this is not a biblically based argument. We're not using a Bible as a source for what we're doing. We will, in this presentation, turn that direction a little bit more. But before we do that, I want to try and make sure we understand the discussion that we've had up until this point. We've used this chart to try and indicate the logic, the flow of ideas, the choices that I think we all really have available to us. We started out assuming there is reality, that you exist. We're not debating the question of reality at this point. That's more of a philosophical area. We're talking about physical evidence. We've pointed out that if you believe you exist, then there's two choices about how that existence came into being. One choice is that it had a beginning, that there was a start to the physical universe in which we live. 
We pointed out that quantum mechanics and areas related to cosmology that talk about superstrings and and uh, brains, B-R-A-N-E-S, and other things of that type are talking about the fundamental properties that go into physics of the very, very small, what makes up electric charge, what makes up quarks, neutrinos, some of the fundamental building blocks of which the cosmos is made. We're talking about the beginning of the physical universe, although the argument could certainly be expended to quantum mechanics, because the laws that govern quantum mechanics, again, have to have been, in some way or another, initiated. But we're not dealing with that in this discussion. We're talking about the physical cosmos. We looked at scientific evidence that there was a beginning. We spent several discussions, several different videos, talking about what that evidence is. Scientifically, it's very clear there was a beginning to the physical universe. Was that beginning caused or was it not caused? And we pointed out that in our discussion, to say it is not caused ends up causing all of the conservation laws of science to be discarded. And that invalidates virtually all modern known science, which is not a, a logical position, not a position consistent with evidence. So we maintain there was a beginning and that the beginning was caused. The final question is what was the nature of the cause? You remember that our statement from the old version of the Humanist Manifesto said the universe is eternal, self-existing, and not created. All modern versions of the Humanist Manifesto have had that last phrase in them. The idea is that we are not a product of creation. We're not a product of intelligence. We're not a product of design of a god. We are the product of rote mechanistic chance. And for some period of time, we looked at the consequences of that belief, the evidence it is not true. We looked at it intuitively. We looked at it architecturally. We looked at it statistically, mathematically. We had a beginning. The beginning was caused. The cause was personal. But the fact still remains that the nature of that cause has to be explored. And in our last presentation, we looked at some of the evidence that the cause could not have been some three-dimensional physical entity. And so we started with the little story of Flatland. And we made reference to the fact that there's even a more modern version of that book called Flatterland. And the idea is that whatever the cause was, it could not have been three-dimensional that a higher dimension is necessary to be able to explain the creation of time, the creation of space, and of course of matter energy. Now that doesn't automatically mean that it is a god, because you could argue from some theories of modern science that there are perhaps superstrings, uh, little fabrics of energy in some higher dimension that collided to produce the physical universe in which we live. But the question remains, can you bring together the concept of a higher dimensional form and the fact of intelligence and purpose? And the suggestion we tried to make was that the concept that the being is outside of time and space and also has the capacity to 
to intelligently and logically design the physical world in which we live points to a God. Now, what we like to do here is to point this discussion towards the biblical framework. Because many of the hard questions that people ask about God and many of the challenges that atheists give to belief in God are rooted in misconceptions about what God is. You're looking here at a picture of the old man in the sky. And in our last presentation, we tried to point out that's not what we're talking about. And in fact, it's interesting that the Bible does not portray God in that way. When you look at descriptions of God given in the Bible, look at these descriptions. God is love. God is light. God is a spirit. Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee. But my Father, who art in heaven, in our discussions, we're making the same plea, the same discussion, that the concept of God that is consistent with the evidence, and also consistent with the biblical presentation at least, is not a flesh and blood God. The Bible says things like God is not a man, God is eternal, God is everlasting, God is the word, God is unseen. Every description of God, from Genesis to Revelation, is totally non-physical, totally non-anthropomorphic. In other words, not like man. Now, you may at this point say, well, now, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Hey, I, I know the Bible talks about the hand of God. I know the Bible talks about the face of God. That's true. But not when God is defined. The Bible uses that kind of a description when it is explaining how God interacts with man. We do the same thing. We talk about the long arm of the law. What do we understand that to mean? That if you break the law, somehow a big hand comes out of the sky and picks you up and disciplines you? Of course not. We're, we're talking about the consistency of the law, aren't we? We're talking about the face of America. What are we talking about? Get up in an airplane and look down on the ground and see a big face? Well, of course not. But we're talking about what the average American believes, what they value. Now, when the Bible uses that kind of a description, it does the same thing. It uses accommodative language to help us understand how God interacts with man. But every time God is defined in the Bible, there are no physical characteristics and there are no human characteristics whatsoever. Now, you may have some problems with that. It may struggle with that a little bit. Because we have difficulty understanding anything that's not a part of our three-dimensional world. I taught high school physics for 41 years in a public high school, trying to keep kids involved, engaged, was always a struggle. And I had a little routine that I used to use once in a while when I had a class that sort of was drifting away from me, you know, it was sort of this business when they came in. I would, uh, and it usually happened in December, I would go back in my office, I even had a red cape I put on. And I would come running out of my office and jump into the room. And as I came into the room, I would scream at the class, Hey, you guys, i got a little deal I want to make with you. And, you know, that wasn't the way I ordinarily began class, so I got some attention. 
And I went on. I want to make a deal with you. I'm going to give you a little diagnostic test. One question. Now, if you get the question right, you don't have to come to class anymore. You don't have to take the homework, do the homework anymore. Some of them have never done it to begin with, but that's another point. You don't have to take the test. You don't have to do the labs. You don't have to write the term paper. You don't even have to take the final exam. You come in the last day of school, and I give you your A, and I don't have to see your face again. Now, for the first time, I have every eye in the room open. You know, they're all coming up on the end of the season. Oh, what you got? I said, okay, we're going to take a little test. One question, essay. Then their eyes all light up. Essay question. I can bluff my way by any essay question. Okay, here we go. One question. Write it down. Define. And they all write down. Define. The word. They write down. The word. Time. Tell me what time is. You got five minutes. <laughs> they didn't even catch that. <laughs> I had one student turn in a paper. In all the years I did that, little gal wrote on her paper, she said, if you go 100 miles at 50 miles an hour, that's two hours. That's time. <laughs> that's, that's not a definition, is it? That's an equivalence. That's like saying 100 pennies equals a dollar. It tells you what it's equal to, but it doesn't tell you what it is. You can't tell me the meaning of the word time. It is physically impossible for you to define the word time. Because time is a fourth-dimensional quantity. You are a three-dimensional being. It is not possible for a being in a lower dimension to define something higher than itself. Now, we have atheists say this. I don't believe in God. I can't see him. I can't smell him. I can't taste him. I can't feel him. I can't hear him. I won't believe in anything unless I can perceive it through my senses. And my response to that is, oh, really? You believe in time? You can't see it, you can't smell it, you can't taste it, you can't feel it, you can't hear it. You believe in time? It's important to understand that definitions are a part of that discussion. And the fact that we can't see or smell or taste or hear or feel time does not mean time isn't real. Many times things that happen to us are a function of our own dimension. And this is true in quantum mechanics. One of the things that people find difficult about quantum mechanics is the concept of simultaneity. The, the idea that uh, events can happen at two particular points that are not physically connected. So you can do something over here and there's an effect over here that there is no physical connection between them. And the question is, well, how can that possibly be? You know, if, if you do something over here, how can it connect to some other place in space that isn't connected to it? And the problem here is dimensions. Let's go back to our flatland analogy for a moment. Okay, here's flatland. And suppose that uh, I have a blue sphere passing through flatland. And I suppose the sphere is, instead of coming across as a whole sphere, Suppose it comes across as a half a sphere. So what we have is this touching flatland. What happens in flatland? Well, there was nothing. And now all of a sudden there's a complete circle. A object 
that is three-dimensional touched the two-dimensional flat land, and it touched it in such a way that all points of the sphere, in this case, hit flat land at the same time. Now, if this wasn't perfectly flat on the bottom, if, for instance, it had a lump on here and a lump on here on opposite sides, then when it touched flat land, the two points would appear at the same time. They would be simultaneous and yet not physically connected in any observable way. Dimensions are an important part of discussions. In any quantum mechanical discussion, the question of dimensions becomes involved. When people talk about superstrings or brains, they're talking about things that exist in multiple dimensions beyond the three-dimensional world in which we live. When I was an atheist, I used to have a lecture I gave which was titled The Stupidity of God. And in that presentation, I used to start out quoting 2 Peter 3 and verse 8. Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that a day is unto the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Do you understand what that's saying? That's saying that God looks at time the way we look at a straight line. We can see the beginning of it. We can see the end of it. We can touch any point along the line that we wish. The Bible says that's the kind of relationship that God has to time. And as an atheist, I used to say, but you talk about stupid. Everybody knows that's not the way time is. Everybody knows time is the one ethereal substance. You can't speed it up. You can't slow it down. It's the one thing. It's the same for everybody. Then I took my first course in nuclear physics. And in that class, we studied Albert Einstein's theory of special relativity, which I'm sure most of you will recognize in this equation. T is the time you experience. T0 is the time you would experience if you were not moving relative to a given frame of reference. V is the speed at which you move, and C is the speed of light. Any algebra student can tell you that if your speed V gets near the speed of light C, then V squared over C squared gets close to 1. It's 1 minus almost 1, so the denominator becomes incredibly small, which makes the fraction become incredibly large. Time dilates. And just to demonstrate this to you, if, you, if you're not an algebra student, let me give you an analogy that it, you've probably heard, but it's very simple, and it, it demonstrates the point. Suppose we have two 10-year-old twins, and we take one of those twins and we put them in a spaceship, and we send them out to the nearest star traveling at the speed of light, which is Alpha Centauri Proxima. The twin gets in the spaceship, he takes off, he flies. It would take him four and three-tenths years. By my watch here up on the Earth, he gets up to Alpha Centauri Proxima, he takes a few pictures, eats his lunch, he turns around and comes back. It takes him four and three-tenths more years to travel back. He would have been gone eight and six-tenths years, essentially nine years, by my watch, here upon the Earth. The door opens, the young man steps out of the spaceship, greeted by his 18-year-old brother, but when the young man steps out of the spaceship, he's still 10 years old. They were the same age when he left. This is not a kooky theory. This is a proven scientific fact. It can be experimentally duplicated and verified in the classroom. We have particles that exist for very short periods of time. We put them in particle accelerators like cyclotrons and bavitrons and synchrotrons. We speed them up to speeds near the speed of light. And particles that would ordinarily live for just a few seconds live for a very, very long time, whatever is dictated by this equation. 
Now you can say, well, that's just a happy coincidence, except that there's a way to check it. There's a way to check it. Because Albert Einstein has another principle. It's called the principle of equivalence. And what it says is that time and space are not different things. They're just different ways of measuring the same thing. Now, you may think that sounds rather complicated. It's really quite simple. When somebody says, how far is it from Indianapolis to Chicago? You could say it's 220 miles. Or you could say on the interstate it's three and a half hours. Are those two different? No. One of them is an expression of time. One is an expression of space. Time and space are inseparably linked. And we all know that. We use that in our common everyday vernacular. It's important to understand that time and space are linked. Let me give you an analogy that might show you how this, this could work or how it can be applied. Suppose I had a magic wand and I could wave it somehow and stop time. But suppose that you could function as you normally do. Think what you could do. You could get in your automobile. You could drive to Los Angeles, California. And if time was not passing, you would be wherever you are now and in Los Angeles. And you'd be both places now. If I could just stop time. Or you could go to Washington, D.C. And you'd be where you are now in California. And in Washington, you'd be all three places. Now, if I could stop time. You could be everywhere and all places now if I could just stop time. And you know that. How many times have you said, if only I had time, I would do what you're going to do? Something in space. It's hard to believe. They gave Einstein all that recognition for something so simple. Especially when you realize that the Bible had already anticipated it. Because the same passages that talk about the relationship of God and time talk about the relationship of God and space. Look at Jeremiah 23, verse 23. God is talking in the passage, and God says, Am I a God near at hand, and not a God far off, saith the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? What's he saying? He's saying God is here. He's in Los Angeles. He's in Washington, D.C. You say, God's in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, believe it or not. He fills all the space here and now. And Einstein says, yes, yes, a God unlimited in time has to be unlimited in space because time and space are inseparably linked. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Acts 17, beginning with verse 22. Paul is talking to the educated elite of his day, the real eggheads in the city of Athens. Remember how he started that out? Man of Athens, I perceive in all things, you're too superstitious. Well, they didn't think they were superstitious. They were the highbrows. Later on, he told them they were ignorant, made a lot of friends that day. And then Paul talked about what Paul called the unknown God. And may I suggest to you it's the same God that is unknown in our world today. And you remember how he described that God? He said, God is a God in whom we live and move and have our being. Now, is that your concept of God? I'm not asking if you believe in God. That's irrelevant. Is the God you believe in or don't believe in, as the case may be, a God in whom you live and move and have your being? 
or is it something you've created in your own image? Uh, the problems we have because we don't understand the nature of God. When somebody says, what color of skin does God have? What's their concept of God? God's not a racial, ethnic being. God doesn't speak any particular language. That's a mistaken concept. When someone says, what sex is God? Listen, God is not a sexual being. One of the books we have in our series is called Looking Back. And it talks about wacko things that have happened to me in the 40 some odd years I've been doing these presentations. And there's a whole chapter on the University of California at Berkeley. It's one of my favorite places to go to do programs. And the first time I did a program there, I was speaking in Lawrence Auditorium and there was a young lady who came up to me in the break between sessions. And she said, Mr. Clayton, she said, I'm going to go to heaven. And I said, really, how do you plan to do that? And she took her coat off and dropped it on the ground. She was totally nude. And she said, I'm going to seduce God. And I don't often make the right response on situations like that, but I did this time, I think. I looked at her and said, ma'am, I said, I'm sorry, but you don't have the right equipment. <laughs> and I thought about what I'd said. And I said, well, that, that's a pretty good response. God is not a sexual being. God does not possess the attributes of males. So God doesn't have all the, the weaknesses, all the insecurities, all the baggage that goes with the male gender. There is no passage in the Bible which indicates that God is a male. And what you do see is passages like Luke 13, beginning with verse 34, in which female characteristics are given. I mean, how can you talk about a hen gathering her chick under her wings and talk about a male image? God is not a sexual being. There is no neuter gender in the Hebrew language. So God is not a sexual being. When somebody says, how can God hear my prayer? And the prayer of the little boy in China at the same time. Listen, God has all of eternity to listen to the last split second prayer of a pilot as his plane goes down in flames. Every prayer you ever prayed is now to God. God listens to your prayers for eternity. Speaking of eternity, what is it? <laughs> I heard a man say one time, eternity is how long it take an ant to move Mount Everest from L.A. to New York. <laughs> no. No, that's not eternity. One of my students said one time, eternity is my second hour of physics class. <laughs> it's bad. I hope it's not that bad. Listen. Listen. Eternity is that situation where time does not exist. Where time does not exist. All right, now think, 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 think. If time doesn't exist, then what else doesn't exist? Yeah, there'll be no space. Time and space are inseparably linked. We can go back and walk on Mars the unlimited in space. There will be no death in eternity. Why not? Because death is dependent upon the passage of time. If I could stop time right now, you would never die. There will be no pain in eternity. Why not? Because pain is determined by how long it takes for the seemingly go from what gets hurt, like my foot, 
what registers what gets hurt. No more tears. No more sorrow. Why not? Because these things are all based upon time. And if you're tracking me right now, you surely realize I just gave you a verbatim quote of Revelation 21 beginning with verse 4, which tells us what it will be like to be in heaven. A timeless condition, free of every miserable constraint that time brings upon us. And when someone says, who created God? Where did God come from? <laughs> Once again, they're demonstrating they do not understand the nature of God. Let me tell you what to do. When someone asks you who created God, hand them a piece of paper, hand them a pencil and say, here, would you please draw me a four-sided triangle? Or a five-sided triangle? Now, obviously, if they're honest and if they're thinking with you, they'll say, well, I can't do that because your question was wrong. And you say, yeah. And so was yours. Because you see, when you say who created God, you made an assumption. Now think, think, think. When you say who created God, you made the assumption there was a time when there was no God. But God created time. God began the beginning. When you look at biblical discussions of the relationship of God and time, what you think is things like, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Before time was, I am, saith the Lord. God created time. He's not limited by it. Now, from a human perspective, we have always been. But the question is wrong because it assumes something about God that is not true. It's like the old story, can God create a rock so big he can't move it? Marshall Keeble, the old Afro-American preacher, used to say, yup, and he can create a bulldozer big enough to do the job. But that still doesn't address the point. The point is the question is wrong. There is no such thing. And there's no such thing as a five-sided triangle. God is outside of space and time. He had no beginning because he created the beginning. That is necessary, that is consistent with the evidence, and it makes common sense. Now, I want to emphasize that I know that I have pushed you pretty hard here. Some of these concepts are different, the things we perhaps have not experienced. We do have some things to help you in this. We have a little booklet which is called A Help in Understanding What God Is that is available on our Does God Exist Org website. You're welcome to, to print it off of that. Or you can contact us and we will mail you a copy on that same website. And we have it available again through the mail. We have a little booklet which is called Who Created God, which goes through the last part of this discussion as well. And all these materials are free upon request. The next thing we want to do is to talk about what does it mean to say that man is created in the image of God? What is a soul? And how do you know you got one? And why would an all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful Heavenly Father create something as dumb and as ugly as me? Why do I exist? Why do you exist? What is the purpose of existence? Important topics. I hope you can be with us in those discussions.
okay? Is your brain hurting? Um, when we start talking about things of this nature um, and some of us are able to um, conceptualize and visualize and accept things of this sort much easier than some of the rest of us. Some of us maybe even talk more than the rest of us about these types of things. Those ideas, of course, Clayton has been been teaching these over the course of uh, 40 years now, so uh, those those ideas flow uh, very easily from from his brain through off of his uh, off of his lips. But he has obviously a uh, as thorough a grasp of those concepts and how they are related to what we understand in the Bible um, as anyone as that that I've ever seen. Um, one of the things he talked about uh, is definitions. Um, definitions are important, and I was thinking as I was I was looking at the video this morning <clears throat> or early this afternoon, and I said, you know, um, why why are definitions important? I asked myself that, and I said, well, in my background, uh, when I taught speech in high school, we uh, introduced the topic of debating, formal debating, where a proposition um, has been uh, offered, a resolution of some sort, and uh, both sides have to deal with that resolution or that proposition, one in favor of it and one against it. But one of the things that you have to do up front, if you are going to fairly and logically um, consider a topic with folks is you have to have definitions. You can't just throw out terms and assume that both of you are thinking the same thing when that word is used. And so um, I'm going to read to you a little bit, but it's going to illustrate uh, the point that I'm making here. And I'll come back and, and tell you why I'm, I'm emphasizing this at the end. Uh, this is off the uh, internet and it uh, talks about debating. Definitions, it says, <clears throat> are almost always given at the beginning of the debate. This is because it helps set up the limits about what is discussed. If this person defines something this way, he or she goes off with that kind of definition, and if I define it a different way, uh, we never come to the same, or are never, never able to come to the same conclusion because we're talking about two different things. It also makes it clear what the issue uh, and the potential propositions are. Some debates focus entirely or exclusively on defining terms. For example, sample, highly controversial uh, topics like abortion or non-traditional marriage. Often the focus is just on uh, what e exactly it means um, to use these terms as to viability or when life begins or what is marriage. Um, we have to nail down what that is if we're going to talk about traditional and non-traditional. And it also helps the remove the fuzziness of the controversy and focus on the, I guess you could say, the more pure uh, exchange of ideas. An example. Resolved that playing video games is detrimental to the development of children. Okay, we've heard that thought before. It's been around for quite a while. Um, but 
listen to some of these questions that need to be defined. Video games. Just refer to online, mobile, console games. What about violent versus nonviolent? Do educational games also fall into this category as well? Detrimental to the development. What kind of development are we talking about? Is this referring to emotional, physical, social, or some other form of development? Children. Are we referring to small children, zero to six? Or young children, seven to 12, or teenagers? So if we are going to discuss a statement, a proposition, a resolution of this sort, we have to define our terms. And so when we talk to others about the existence of God, <clears throat> about things that John Clayton is sharing with us on these, uh, these lessons, we have to define our terms because if we don't, then we may not even be talking about the same thing. It drives me crazy when I see people arguing on TV and someone throws out a term and they don't stop and say, well, what exactly do you mean by that? Give me an example of that. For clarity's sake, and they, they go on arguing and this one's thinking this over here and this one's thinking this over here and they're never going to resolve anything. They may never anyway, even if they are talking about the same thing. But if they're talking about two different things, then they're never even going to get close. There was a term called uh, in law enforcement called profiling a few years back. And a lot of people equated that to prejudice, uh, to, to racism. And what it really boils down to and this is something that could be argued, I assume, once we define them, is to, it boils down to probability. All you're looking at is statistics. Who, what groups, whatever, commit the most crimes, and then we start, when, when a crime is committed, due to statistics, we go and look at those groups. And I'm not talking necessarily uh, racial in this case. I have something else here, I have something else, something else here. Um, it says, that it's, it's a little article about the, the importance of defining terms, and I believe this is from uh, a religious website. It says, a few years ago, I, I listened to the podcast, The Word Nerds. That was the name of the podcast. Podcasts helped me gain an appreciation for the power of the English language. In my conversations with people, I've noticed the power of words themselves. Using the wrong word can cause needless arguments. Using a less specific word can cause confusion and many other effects. Defining terms is an extremely important is extremely important in conversations. In normal language, certain words have an, an accepted definition that is assumed based on the context of, of how you are using it. If these words did not exist, then you wouldn't be able to read this post and, and understand it. However, Many words have slightly different meanings to different people. Let's, and he gives an example here. He says, let's take the word science. How many definitions for this are you aware of? I picked this one because I was at a debate between William Dembski and Michael Roos in 2009. The topic was, is intelligent design science? And uh, interestingly, Clayton uh, dealt with that in about the second or third uh, of, uh, of uh, lessons that he presented. He says, I was quite perturbed to see that they were each defining intelligent design 
the same, but they were not defining science the same. In order for such a debate to have been fruitful, all the terms in the question up for debate needed to be agreed upon. For example, using his own definition of science, Michael Roos made a compelling case that that could not be refuted as long as William Dembski accepted Roos's definition. However, since Dembski did not accept his de definition and instead used his own, then Roos's position could easily be undermined. The same happened when Dembski used his definition of science and Roos refuted him um, on that. Um, since the purpose of debates is to convince based upon agreed upon information, neither debate accomplished what they had, he mentions a second debate here, what the potential, um, what, what had the potential to accomplish the definitions of science and objective in the second debate needed to be debated and agreed upon before any questions containing the words could be debated. This is quite important when discussing religious, political, and other worldview ideas with someone who is opposed. Words that some people take to be universally defined across all worldviews are in for a huge surprise. Many words are not. God means one thing to Christian to the Christian and means another to the Buddhist or Muslim um, empirical evidence. Means one thing to a science and means another to the historian. So why do, why do I mention this? Mark, Mark Twain is one of my, my favorite authors. And um, for a young man who was raised in, under very poor conditions in, in Hannibal, Missouri, um, grew to be one of the most fascinating and interesting lecturers and masters of the English language. If you, you cannot read much of Twain's work and not appreciate his ability um, in handling uh, the English language. And, and he said one time, <clears throat> and I, I tell this to my students, I said, Mark Twain says, the difference between the right word and almost the right word is the same as the difference between lightning and lightning bug. Now obviously he's, he's being a little facetious there, but he's saying words have designated meanings. They have sometimes more than one meaning, and there are numerous shades, uh, connotations, denotations, things of that sort, colors of words. The word that you choose to say uh, something can either come across as very forceful or very benign when both of those words mean the same thing. Some words have emotions automatically attached to them. So the use of words in talking with people about this topic or any topic are important, the words we use. And if we are going to talk about very significant words like God, like creation, like time, like space, like any of the things that he has talked about already and will talk about, need definitions. So it is always worthwhile to stop and, and pause before you go too far in a discussion to make sure that, that you are both talking about the same thing, that you are on the same page, um, not necessarily in how you view these, but the definitions of the words you use. Um, those who oppose 
religion as he has illustrated here in a number of cases over these lessons will will use phrases and will use terminology that um, are almost they appear to be almost intentionally um, obtuse um, fuzzy um, not not necessarily precise and so um, there will be an attempt when you talk to people from this standpoint about the Word of God and about the Bible and about God as a creator um, they will ask you questions that you can't answer and he just gave us an example of a couple of those uh, there at the end but that's because you're asking the wrong question God exists outside of our three-dimensional world and for us to attempt to define God in three-dimensional terms is a lost cause. He does not exist. And this is one of the best explanations and maybe the best explanation I've ever heard about why God um, exists where he does and how that either does or does not impact who and what we are here in this three-dimensional world. Um, I've said an awful lot. Is there anything you wanted to add to that anywhere along the way? <laughs> I think it's important to start with good definitions, you know, to make sure everybody's on the same page. Um, as you're arguing about or you're having conversations about sometimes incredibly complex thoughts. So if you if you start off with defining terms different ways, it's difficult to come to a resolution. <laughs> Uh, but it's also interesting that he, he brought uh, the Second Peter 3, 9 to view there. I've heard that explained before. You know, God's outside of time, so he, he looks at it as a timeline, like we would look at a timeline. Uh, and you kind of think, oh, yeah, that, that, makes, that makes some sense, you know. But yeah. the, the idea that to have created space and time, he had to be outside of space and time, had never really entered my mind. Um, but it... it it makes a lot of sense when he starts comparing it to the flatland thing, and you know the. I mean, you kind of grab it like that when you start thinking about God. It's a little bit more difficult to understand, but uh, I think the correlation's there. For something to create something else, it has to be different than that something else. Superior. And 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 my next statement was going to be yeah. superior. Yeah. <laughs> But but yes, and it, it, it you can't have um, a a three dimensional God creating a three dimensional world because then he is creating something that he's already in. He has to be outside of that which he creates, superior to that which he creates. And we mentioned this last week: uh, the potter and the clay. Can the clay say to the potter, you know, why did you create me? No, well, no, you don't. You don't have any right as a piece of clay to question the potter. Job found that out. Uh, others found that out. Um, but uh, Job is one where we have, what, three or four chapters there at the end of Job where God said... About 66 <laughs> questions worth of questions. I, uh, I'll tell you a quick little story. I've got, I've got some time here. I, I, I think I've uh, shared with you that I'm, I teach an online uh, class. I shared with Chris that I have 22 
students in this online class, and these are doctoral level students, and, and we uh, deal by and large with discussion boards. I, they do a reading, I throw out some prompts, and then they post initial statements, responses to those prompts based on their experiences with these concepts or these theories or whatever and how it applies in their life. And then the rest of the week, they talk to one another um, about um, what they posted and about the reading. And we get into a lot of conversations uh, about those particular topics, but we'll get off on topics and other things and just talk about uh, about life in general and 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 uh, you know our our goals in life and leadership and 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 all sorts of things like this. Well, I, I had a student <clears throat> contact me and says, "I think you you ask too much of us. Your your expectations are too high for this course. We are all busy. We all have jobs. Um, we uh, all have uh, you know our personal lives." And for us to spend as much time on this uh, discussion board each week as you are expecting is just a little bit uh, out of line. And I, all I, all I tell her, I tell them in the syllabus that uh, most classes, at least traditional classes, graduate classes, are three hours per week. If you met on a weeknight, you would meet for three hours, 45 hours across the semester, 15 weeks, and that that's the way that that works. I said, if you spend three hours a week on these, you will get more, than, unless you are just really slow in keyboarding, really, you'll, you'll get more than is necessary. And really, this is a pretty easy A. All I'm asking you to do is participate in these discussions and, and contribute based on your experience and how your experience relates to these theories and these concepts. And uh, she came back and said, well, you know, uh, you're probably going to get some uh, emails from some other students because I, th I think they feel the same way I do. And I wanted to turn to Job <laughs> 39 and say, where were you when I created this course and had taught it for the last seven semesters um, without these kind of complaints? And I want to think, you know... Who are you to tell me how to how to run my class when nobody else has complained before? And and I and I I really wanted to come back with something sharp and pithy and and pointed and and put down. And I said that's that's the wrong way to do it. And so I just went back and explained again my rationale and what it's going to take and uh, that um, you know if she has a complaint she can go to the department head, but the department head's not going to be sympathetic because the department head was upset when I cut out the papers every other <laughs> week that they had to write. And I said, I have a feeling that you're, you would be glad that I cut those out. I had other reasons for doing so. Um, so for man to attempt to define God in his own terms is tantamount to the potter question the clay uh, questioning the potter, a student questioning you know uh, the design of a class, um, and it 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 it's presumptuous, and and it it smacks of an ego that um, you know qualifies one to speak about things about which he or she uh, does not know, uh, or at least doesn't have the whole story. Um, I told her. To go ahead and have her friends contact me because I would just cut paste from my emails 
to her uh, for them. Um, the argument would be the same, and um, I'm pretty much unmovable uh, <laughs> in that regard. Um, I do take suggestions from my students. I, we were just talking at a, about a book that Chris has here on his shelf that I use in this particular class because a student suggested that it would be a good, uh, a good book to use, and it is perfect. Uh, I had never read it before, never heard of it, um, but it's a nice uh, little piece to throw into this uh, group class, um, leading group class that I, that I teach. Definitions are important. Understandings are important. And if you are going to talk with someone about something as important as God's Word, you both have to be clear about terms and definitions. Um, it does no one any good to be talking in two different rooms about something when in this room this person is saying this means this and the same term this person over here is saying it means something else. There's got to be a way to uh, resolve that issue. <clears throat> One of the things that we have done uh, in these Wednesday night classes over the past year is try to provide people with um, a good solid foundation for answering others. Um, always be ready to provide an answer for the hope that lies within you. Um, that's a command. And what we have tried to do is provide people with tools. We went through the series, uh, How We Got the Bible, or the book, How We Got the Bible, and looked at, at uh, the, the, the amazing, really complete history of this word that we have here. No other ancient book has anywhere near, anywhere near, Abraham Lincoln doesn't have anywhere near the evidence that this book came from where it says it came from and that there are sources and resources that we can go to to confirm that over and over and over again. And people, I think in many cases, just are not aware that that evidence exists and that evidence is there. <clears throat> we can have confidence in the fact that um, this isn't just a, a fairy tale that we happen to buy into. There is sound evidentiary proof and evidence that, that this is um, God's Word. We just have to go and be able to have that pretty much at our fingertips or know where to go to get it when we talk to people about that because that is a surprise to a lot of people. They think this was this is just a book that was you know, written or concocted over, you know, over time and men's ideas as opposed to God's ideas and uh, it's considerably more than that, considerably more. It is the most important book that has ever been written or will ever be written um, and we need to be able to not only know it and understand it but we need to be able to teach others about what it says and that's impact and that how that impacts them, not only in this life, but in the life uh, hereafter. That's all I have to say. If you want to say anything else, Chris, or wrap up, have at it. All right. Thank you guys for watching. Uh, it should be on YouTube right now. We've started this new system, so uh, you can 
dial in that phone number, 304-278-0763. And they'll be listening to it as we're live right here. It'll also be live on YouTube. It's live on Facebook, obviously. Um, But all those things are happening right now. Uh, Afterwards, if you're looking for it after we uh, record this, I think YouTube has a little delay on it, but it'll be up tonight, I think. One other thing, uh, the topic next week is what is man? Uh, He's going to talk uh, about uh, the same way that he talked about God. Obviously, it's different. Space and time. Well, what is what is man, Uh, and how and how does man best relate to a God that is not of our dimensions? Well, he is. He's in our dimensions, and he's beyond our dimensions. He's all over. (laughs) Thank you. We'll see you next week.